0: Hello, Monetization Nation. I'm Nathan Guilherme, your host. Today, I'm joined by Shailene Gupta. Shailene is a former Fortune journalist, and her work has appeared in the Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, and ESPN. She's also the co-author of the book, The Power of Trust. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how trust can empower our businesses. We're going to cover the following key takeaways. Number one, trust is our willingness to be vulnerable to another organization's or person's intentions and actions. Number two, we are more likely to trust organizations that are authentic and fair. Number three, trust is our license to operate. Number four, trusting our leaders and teams can help us improve our overall performance and success. And number five, the four elements of trust are confidence, motive, fairness, and impact. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Shalene.
1: Thanks, Nathan. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And today we're going to talk about how trust can empower your business. Will you start off by sharing with us something that you are super passionate about?
1: I think it's really two things that I'm super passionate about. First, it's this idea of building organizations that enable everybody to do the work and the best work that they can do, which is primarily what trust is about and how you have a trusted business. And then secondly, putting together clear and lucid narratives and communicating with people because that's the secret of getting all these ideas out there. If nobody understands you, your ideas doesn't get around.
0: Can you share with us one of your greatest home runs or success stories that you've had in your career?
1: I'm actually going to say it's about the trust book. So I'm going to take you down a walk, a walk down memory lane. I had worked a number of jobs in different organizations and industries, and I just got to a point where I was like, you know, I've, I've kind of had it, I, I love working. But sometimes organizations, particularly large ones, are set up in ways where it doesn't necessarily enable everybody to get the work done or to share their ideas. A lot of times it depends on having the personality or sort of being that A-type alpha person who's able to get the attention and resources, which I'm an introvert, I'm a writer, there's a little bit of a struggle. And so was like, all right, you know, I've had it. I'm going to quit. I'm going to be a starving novelist. It's going to be wonderful. Unfortunately, the world has the audacity to charge you rent. When you decide to do these things. So I went off and I got a day job at Harvard Business School where I met Sandra Fletcher and at the time she was working on a book on layoffs and what I loved about Sandra's work is she also had a body of research about how leaders can be making better and more ethical decisions and the crux of her research on layoffs was about how companies can make better decisions than layoffs, because it turns out layoffs hurt everybody, and they're bad for business and productivity. And I was sitting there really thinking about, wow, I wish there was a way to combine all of this, because if you look at the spread of the whole research, there's a really great story here about how business can be a force of good in the world. And in fact, if many of the companies I've worked at were practicing some of these things, I probably would have still stayed. Uh, So we were on a business trip to Japan, actually researching a company for her book, and at the end of the trip, I turned to Sandra and I said, you know, Sandra, do you actually want to write this book on layoffs? I think you're sitting on something much more interesting, bigger here. And then I had this moment of like, oh my God, what did I just do? I just questioned my boss about her research of the past few years. I gonna get fired. Like, this is not a good moment. And Sandra actually turned to me and she's like, I think you're right. Let's talk. So we actually went back to Boston and we bat around lots of ideas about how to weave everything together. And the result was the book that Nathan just told us. And we actually ended up writing about trust.
0: So the greatest success was a book. You you were helping with research. You found a uh, a core theme or motive and, and you helped create this book. How, how has that book helped you in your career so far?
1: So many ways. I think it's, first of all, it's, it's just given me purpose because I, you know, I came from a place where I enjoyed working. I liked doing the work, but there'd be moments when I step back and I was just kind of like, what is this all leading to? Like, okay, I've put in my more than eight hours a day. I met all my deadlines. what am I contributing to the world? How am I making it a better place? And I I wasn't always necessarily able to answer that question. Uh, And with this book, I feel really passionate. Like, I want people to read about the practices that some of these companies are are up to and to really think about how do you do a better job of building trust with customers? How do you manage employees? What does it actually mean to be trusted? Because we tend to think of trust as an amorphous if you don't really understand what trust is, how can you build that? How can you craft better relationships?
0: All right, let's go to your book. Um, let's talk about the power of trust. So, let's start off with, with just a definition. What is the definition of trust?
1: Thanks for asking that question, Nathan, because as much as we talk about trust, a lot of times I find, that, I find that people have a lot of different conversations and definitions, and then you can't have a conversation. So, trust, in short, is our willingness to be vulnerable another organization or person's intentions and actions.
0: How does authenticity relate to trust in your mind?
1: Absolutely. Actually, Nathan, I'm just going to take one step back to add on to what you just commented in addition to your brilliant interviewing technique for creating vulnerability. There's also a way in which you need to think about vulnerability through organizations. So if you just think about it on a really simple basis, like a customer goes and they buy, let's say, you know, an egg at a grocery store. And this happened to a friend of mine. She bought an egg at a grocery store in China. She went home, she cracked it, and it was actually full of chemicals because at the time there was a great scandal going on where a company was selling fake eggs. And we tend to take that kind of thing for granted in America. But the idea is basically all of us as individuals are deeply vulnerable to organizations because as an individual there's not much you can do about that egg until you get some collective action going on. As an employee, when you sign up to work with a large company, if they fire you, they're unfair to you. There's not really much you can do as a single person. So you are vulnerable. And your willingness to engage either as a customer or an employee or an investor or a member of society depends on how willing you are to be vulnerable to that organization, how much you trust them.
0: So you talked about vulnerability. And then I was just going to the next step of authenticity. Because it feels like to be authentic we have to be vulnerable. How how do you feel authenticity is connected to trust?
1: I mean, I think it goes to the informational fairness part of trust. Um, So Trust is basically built on four dimensions. How confident you are, your motives, and then how fair you are, right? And part of being fair is the information that you choose to share with different stakeholders. And so part of that is just how relevant is what you're saying? How true is it? And that's when the authenticity part comes in. And that's where people can sniff that out.
0: You've been part of a lot of research um, as as part of preparing this book. Can you talk to us about the science behind trust?
1: So I think a couple of things that I find deeply fascinating are just, first of all, there's a lot of data floating around by how um, trust can actually really improve your bottom line and how trust is integral for performance So there was a study of NCAA basketball teams, and they found that the single most important element in a team's performance was how much the team trusted their coach. So the team that won the most, right? The team that won the most number of games was the team that had the most trust in their coach, and the team that had like mostly losses for that season had the least amount of trust. And they actually conducted a follow-up interview with one of the players, and the player basically said, look, you know, once we trusted our coach and bought into whatever he was saying, there was no longer hesitation, pushing back, or questioning. They were able to really maximize practice time and work together. So if you think about that in a business context, where businesses are built of teams performing together, that has a real impact on your bottom line. And so there's other studies that show that trust in the leader is correlated with an improvement to your revenue. And then there's this great study which shows if you imagine all these businesses working together, a 10% increase in trust in the population is tied to a 1% increase in overall GDP of an economy.
0: And when you think about how hard it is to move GDP, that's incredible. So trust may be one of the most important things we can do to drive our global and local economies.
1: Absolutely,
0: 100%. What do you think the impact of trust is on a business
1: it's basically your license to operate saying before like picture my friend going and buying that egg is she ever going to buy an egg from that seller again not likely and now what if the seller releases a different product very unlikely that she'll probably go and buy their eggs and this might sound sort of airy fairy but now when you think about the battles that we're going into with tech companies and sort of this angst that we're having collectively over do we use Facebook, how do we feel about it, what's our metaverse, how do we feel about it? Those are all issues related to trust. The amount of permission that we're going to give companies to innovate to try new products all comes down to how much we trust them.
0: Okay, so how do companies build that trust?
1: Oh, absolutely. So, four different elements first is confidence. And you know, this is where I think tech companies get it really right. It's the company's ability to deliver a product or service that works. And this is huge. If you think about all the ways in which tech makes our life easier, the fact that I can call an Uber to my house through my phone instead of like trying to run down the street, flag down a taxi, which may or may not stop for me. That's a big deal. But then there's three other elements of trust. And this is a lot of times where some companies stop thinking about how to build trust. The first is motive. On whose behalf are you acting? So we understand that companies have to make a profit, and a company that makes a profit is a good thing because it can employ people, it can write paychecks, it can create products and services we need. At the same time, though, the company has other duties besides just making a profit, and it has to respond to them because it has an enormous power to hurt customers, employees, or investors. Next is fairness. How fair is a company? How does it treat its individual groups of people? And then finally, whether you like it or not, impact. A company is responsible for the impacts it has, even if they're unintended, because at the end of the day, what are we going to judge first? We're going to say, look, I bought this product from X company. It didn't work. I had to spend an hour on the phone with customer service. My life is worse. And trust breaks. And so our ability to trust is an individual's personal capitalist based on how those four different elements are going.
0: Can you give me an example of a company or a couple of companies that have effectively built trust?
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, So one of my favorites is Uber because it's complex. And so just give me a moment while I explain how Uber has actually built trust, which is if you think about the world before Uber and what it was like to get a cab, it was really hard. You didn't know how much the cab was going to charge you. And there's some reports that, you know, if you were a person of color in New York, a cab wouldn't necessarily stop for you or you'd take you to an outer borough. So Uber changed all of that. It made cabs affordable. It made them arrive at the click of a button. Mm-hmm. You knew exactly what you were going to get charged. And there's a system of good behavior for both the customer and the driver. So no more rude cab drivers. And that's a really big deal. And so when you think about the troubles that Uber had during 2017 and 2018, you also get a lot of people experiencing Uber angst, right? Where they're just like, oh, I don't feel good about Uber. I know they don't treat their employees well. There was this whole blog report by Susan Fowler about sexual harassment. But at the same time, it's still using Uber. Am I just a bad person what's going on. And the reality is that Uber did an excellent job of building trust through Uber. it didn't do so great on motives or means, but because it did a great job on confidence and then there's that whole impact thing where if overall your life is better because you use it, we're still going to engage. There's still some amount of trust
0: like that. Yeah. It seems like lately with Uber, a lot of the stories have to do with sexual assaults um, through Uber. And I'm interested to see how they're going to build the trust through that. And obviously, going back to our original conversation, the first step of, of building trust is inside out, right? They've, they've got to figure out how to solve that problem, not just message to the world that they're safe, but they've got to actually make it safe.
1: I a couple of positive things they did is one, they were willing to take a hard look at that data. So they published a safety report and two, they're actually building in safety features. And I feel like those are two very concrete steps because the first, you know, understanding that you've got a problem and actually being willing to look at the issue. And it, it gets a little complex, right? Because I think they did get some pushback and some horror when people saw the numbers because it's there, it's concrete, and it's not like, oh, everything is perfect and daisies, daisies and roses. Like, there's, there's an issue. But frankly, most people don't even get to the point of saying, okay, what is our problem? How do we quantify it? What are
0: we going to do? They're not willing to be open to that. That's right. I remember when I was a kid, there was a, a cartoon called G.I. Joe. And uh, the the tagline of GI Joe was "Knowing is half the battle." Um, they would put that in, at the end of every episode, right? Because knowing is half the battle, and and that's so true here, right? If if you've got a problem, knowing the problem, being willing to acknowledge the problem that that's half the battle, right there. Then you can attack it. But if you're not willing to acknowledge it, if you're not aware of it, you know, there's no way it'll ever get solved. Absolutely,
1: and I wish actually that we as audiences were. We're a bit better about acknowledging the importance of understanding the problem because sometimes we're, I think we can be really hard on companies that are actually doing the work. For instance, Patagonia realized it had a problem with its secondary suppliers. So not even the people producing its clothing, but the raw materials. And it was like, it said, okay, there." so there was basically a labor problem where um, people were being forced to pay for jobs and pay headhunters for them, and then they were locked into the labor because they weren't earning enough wages to pay back the headhunter in these mills that were producing the raw materials. And Patagonia basically went out, did the investigation, said this is unacceptable. And it got a certain amount of flack because people were just saying, oh my gosh, Patagonia is trying to market itself as this company that really cares about labor rights and is trying to do the right thing, and look, it has issues. So if you ask yourself how many other fashion businesses are really going not only to looking at their first degree suppliers who make the clothing, but their second degree raw material suppliers and doing the work, it's not very many at
0: all. Can you share with us any examples of companies that have done a poor job building trust? And maybe you don't want to name the company specifically and not throw them under the bus. Maybe you just say the industry or whatever you want to do there.
1: Um, So I think something that's going to be really fascinating to look at is trust because on one hand I think they got in and they acquired a lot of power and prestige and a certain amount of trust because they were able to build these products and services that have changed our lives. We're able to work remotely during the pandemic thanks to tech companies. On the other hand I would say that perhaps innovation has outpaced thinking about the cultural impact of some of these products. It's outpaced thinking about Ethics, and then there are times when their impacts on different groups of people, uh, which the company may not have been anticipating, or it did anticipate and didn't do anything about it, and should have done something. And we're seeing the fallout of,
0: of that now. Yeah, that's interesting. So as as we're recording this episode, I think some of the recent news articles that have come out related to what you're talking about is, is that Mark Zuckerberg spent hundreds of, and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to influence the election in one specific direction. And, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. And I'm not saying one political party is right or wrong. We're not taking any position like that, but, um, that's interesting to have a, a social platform that is, that's trying to influence elections one direction, right? They've, they've in In my mind, lost a lot of trust they're not an im like when I was a child, I looked at a news organization like cNN and said that their, their job was to be an impartial source. They were supposed to report on the news and and if there was an issue they were supposed to say here's the here's the one side of it and here's the other side of it and and that that's what news reporting was but it, it feels like all the news organizations today at least all the the major um the mainstream ones have have gone one direction or the other right? And it feels like that bias has hurt their credibility a lot. And it feels like Facebook used to be this platform that was the voice of the people. And it feels like they've taken a huge hit because it's come out that they are heavily showing bias in one direction. And I'm not saying that direction is good or bad, right? That I support or don't support that bias, but just that they are, they're trying to push their users one direction is, is very concerning for me. Like, it doesn't feel like that should be the role of, of a social platform or even a news organization, right? They should report on the news. But I don't know. What are your thoughts there?
1: I mean, I think you bring up a really good point because when you think about Facebook, it's felt to us, right, as human connection. And i part of the play, it's so addictive because all of a sudden you can go and you can connect with all of these people that you may have lost touch with, like high school friends. People that you cared about, that you liked, but if you moved, you know, you weren't necessarily going to keep in touch. And now you've got a constant feed of what they're up to. And so we think, all right, like this discourse is it's, its this is a great way to be social. But then it's actually not because so on the one hand, we've always had people disagreeing about elections and taking different points of view. We've always had people having a discourse about their opinions, but. What we haven't had is we haven't had a platform like Facebook where there's specific algorithms to raise or to lower some posts that can actually manage what is shown and how many people read it. And that's what's frightening because first of all, we go in thinking this is an equal opportunity platform where everything gets sort of its moment in the sun and it's going to get seen more if it's something that people agree with, it's going to get more likes, we didn't count on the possibility of like, oh, there are actually algorithms here which are analyzing based on emotion and are figuring out what should we see more of and are repopulating that. And then that's also concerning because we have questions then about like, what's in this algorithm? How does it work? What's the privilege? What's the prioritize? And we don't actually know. And then all of a sudden we're operating in a black box with human emotion and that is frightening.
0: I guess maybe I shouldn't go too far. I'll go too far in that direction, but I believe people should be able to share their opinions, right? I, I believe whatever it is, whether it's on one side of the issue or the other side of the issue and allow that conversation to happen. And when one group sees that it's their role to stifle the conversation of one side, that one one side, whichever side it is, is not valid. I, I think that's Thank you so much Shaylene, for sharing your stories and insights with us today to learn more about or connect with Shaylene, You can find her on Twitter on her website Shailenegupta.com or find her book the power of trust on Amazon and there's links to each of these sites on the blog post for this episode on our site You can also get a free copy of my ebook passion marketing and learn how you can become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com Com. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and I wish you success in leveraging trust to empower your business. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.